If you were to divide Jesus' roughly three-year documented earthly ministry into three general sections, you'd have the first year being a period of relative obscurity. The third and final year would prove to be a period of profound opposition with the second year in between, Jesus' ministry in the Galilee being known as a period of soaring popularity. In fact, at the end of the fourth chapter, Matthew sums up this middle season the following way. He writes, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all of Syria. And a great multitude followed him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond the Jordan. Because Jesus' primary ministry in the Galilee was formally teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, with the miracles and the healings coming as kind of a secondary, a supportive function, Matthew transitions into chapter 5 by now just giving us a practical example of one of Jesus' sermons. Thematically, this makes sense. Traditionally known as the Sermon on the Mount, on account that Jesus gave the sermon atop a mountain, one of the many mountains that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And while likely just an outline of a much larger sermon that Jesus probably gave at the time, and presented, recorded by Matthew as an example of kind of what the content that dominated his teaching ministry looked like, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 records what is undoubtedly, without question, the most famous dissertation we have of Jesus, likely the most famous sermon ever given. Now, as I noted last Sunday, there are a few things you need to understand about this sermon that will aid in your understanding of what Jesus is articulating, as well as, and probably most importantly, the appropriate way in which these heavy ideas should be applied to our lives in a very practical sense. Initially, the way that Matthew 5 sets the scene establishes for us kind of an important context. We read, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, he opened his mouth and he taught them. While the reaction to this sermon at the end, the end of chapter 7, indicates that the crowds, the multitudes, were able to listen and to what Jesus was saying, fundamentally, the Sermon on the Mount was a message that Jesus crafted for his disciples out of a concern for the hurting multitudes. Though the day will come when Jesus the King finally returns to the earth, establishes his throne, puts an end to the chaos caused by sin, and rules in righteousness until that day arrives. It is our job, you and I as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, as the followers of Jesus, to bring a taste of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, to this world. Again, as we work our way through the weighty things that Jesus shares, it is critical you keep in mind that this was not a sermon for the unbelieving world, but for the believer, Jesus' disciples. As such, never forget that Jesus 
was not describing in the Sermon on the Mount an ethical ideal that societies could work to implement. But instead, Jesus was articulating a foreign morale that could only come from heaven itself. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes what the lives of his disciples should look like, practically, as the citizens of his kingdom living here on earth. Disciples, men and women who've rejected this world, who's accepted Jesus as their sovereign king and are living their lives accordingly. That is what the Sermon on the Mount describes. And yet, in light of the fact, this description of who we're called to be (laughs) will often leave us deeply aware of our own shortcomings and our serious inadequacies. Please know the sermon, this sermon, it wasn't a declaration of the life Jesus wanted his disciples to work hard to live out. No, no, no. This is a description of the life that Jesus is presently working out in the lives of his disciples. Much different. You see, the ability, our ability, for our lives to be like Christ can only happen how? By Christ working in and through our lives. It's his work, not mine. It must be accomplished by his Holy Spirit. Now, one more thought before we dive into the text. In many ways, as I've been thinking about this particular sermon, it's really, it's kind of like, it's the second Sermon on the Mount. You know, years earlier, from an entirely different mountain, God spoke to his people during the Exodus, and he gave them the perfect law. He gave them a code to live by. Sad to say, by the time of Christ, The Hebrew people had twisted what was God's uh, description of a holy life into this religious structure by which a person would work to achieve holiness. Instead of the law being a, a depiction of who God wanted his people to be, the Jews had turned it all into a list of things they were commanded to do. And what resulted was this fake, pseudo, false moralism. Because of this, and the person of Jesus, God, now returns to the mountain and he issues a new set of laws for his people with the specific intention of bringing them to the place the first set was designed to. As we go through the sermon, you'll find a repeated refrain. Jesus will say, you've heard it said of old. What's he referring to? Well, the first sermon on the mount. But assuredly, I say to you. He'll do this often. And then what will Jesus do? He will take things that were said from Mount Sinai, things like, thou shalt not murder, don't commit adultery, love your neighbor, basic stuff. But then what does Jesus do in the second Sermon on the Mount? He makes those commands even more intimidating and daunting. He's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say to you, if you're angry, you've committed murder. Hey, you shouldn't cheat on your wife. But I say to you, if you lust after another woman, you've committed adultery. The law, the first time around, I said, hey guys, (laughs) love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. I'm only scratching the surface to an important reality we'll get to often through the sermon. But as we go through it, 
I really think Jesus wants your reaction to be. <laughs> I can't do these things. Like, I think Jesus wants you, as you're going through this sermon, to feel intimidated, to feel inadequate, to be like, look at me. What Jesus is describing, I fall woefully short. In fact, apart from God's involvement in my life, none of these things are possible. Bingo. That's where you're supposed to be as you go through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's not to say that the Sermon on the Mount presents an unattainable ideal that we should just give ourselves a pass. Now, it's true. In and of yourself, you have no ability to manufacture any of these things. But because Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all of these characteristics, it means that Jesus is more than able to make you into this person. This sermon is not a mandate of things the citizens of heaven must do, but a description of the type of people he's making us into, the type of people we're becoming. This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with, with what's known as the Beatitudes. Let's look, verse 3. Jesus begins his sermon, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know it's, it's cliche to say, but it's true nonetheless. That we refer to the next nine verses, famously, as the Beatitudes and not the Do-attitudes. In this opening, Jesus provides his disciples with a description of who the citizens of heaven were to be and not a list of things for them to do with each of these Beatitudes. You will notice that they all begin with the identical tag and they're presented using the same structure. First, they each start with the phrase, blessed are, in conjunction with a particular characteristic. In verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are, the poor in spirit. In the original, the, the phrase blessed are, in the Greek, it's one word. It's, it's a descriptive adjective. In fact, a more modern translation of this would read, the poor in spirit are blessed. Well, the word blessed can be loosely translated as happy. <laughs> I think that translation is, is misleading and fosters a lot of the wrong conclusions. Like, as if, we'll get to it later, I'm supposed to be really happy about being persecuted. Yeah! No. You know, as a unique blessing given to a person by God, Jesus was describing here an objective state of being. And not necessarily a feeling or an emotion that's left to one's subjective perspective. The, the, the structure of blessed are, it presents for us a definitive statement. The poor in spirit are blessed. It's really not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. It's a definitive thing. With that in mind, following Jesus' statement of fact, blessed are, the uniform structure of each beatitude is in Really, it's kind of a stroke of genius. It's, it's beautifully crafted to then provide an explanation for that particular divine blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, fill in the blank, everyone, for, and then what happens? Jesus gives the reason 
that characteristic is blessed. Now, returning to the first beatitude here, Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, why are the poor in spirit blessed by God? Well, he answers, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, right from the jump, Jesus is saying that a central characteristic concerning the citizens of heaven, his disciples, Christians, you and me, is that we are to be poor in spirit. Now, please note that the idea behind the word poor in the Greek was to describe someone poor. (laughs) In fact, not just poor, but the word describes someone that is completely, absolutely impoverished, destitute. Like this is a person, poor. They have nothing of any tangible value. And yet we understand that Jesus is not speaking of of a monetary poverty, but a spiritual one, right? The poor in spirit. Keep in mind, Jesus is not describing a form of religious self-hatred. That's not what he's saying. Blessed are those who hate themselves. Or, Or he's not describing like a superficial loathing. He's not advocating like self-deprecation or what I like to call an Eeyore spiritualism. Woe is me. You know, you run into these type of people. Well, I'm poor in spirit. No, you're not. You're just a downer. (laughs) You know, instead of this, this fake thing, what Jesus is describing when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's describing a person who is just keenly aware of their own spiritual condition. That's who the poor in spirit is. You know, it says that, that, that pride exists in the life of a person who's lost sight of who they really are. Like you have a fault. If you're, if you're welled up with pride, you have a false understanding of yourself. Whereas humility, again, not self deprecation. But like just self-awareness, like I'm, I'm humble in that I actually really, I know I'm a moron. Um, I know my shortcomings. I know my failures. I, I, like I'm not playing a game. I'm not two-faced. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm just, I know who I am. I, I'm, and as a result, I'm humble. I realize that when it comes to this spiritual life, this spiritual world, I'm poor. In and of myself, I don't have anything. I'm, I'm destitute. Now, why is such a person the poor in spirit, now blessed by God. Well, Jesus says of the truly humble, the person with this correct estimation of their spiritual state, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's not an accident that Jesus begins this sermon with this particular beatitude. Why? (laughs) Well, in a lot of ways, the spiritual life has to begin with humility. There's actually really no other way. To come to the cross, there has to be an acknowledgement of self. There has to be an acknowledgement of fallenness, that I'm lost, that I had no other options to come to a cross. We're told in the scriptures that God, what? He gives grace to the humble. It's humility, it's poverty, it's poor in spirit. And he resists the proud. 
To be poor in spirit means that you've come to the place where you understand who you really are apart from Jesus. And yet it's amazing that to such a person, poor in spirit, with nothing to offer at all, Jesus affirms this this amazing reality. He says, for theirs is. It's a present tense thing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This tells us that the kingdom of heaven, you know, a poor person has nothing. They can't buy it. They can't earn it. They can't manufacture it. They can't warrant it. they, They are the least deserving. This tells us that the kingdom, it's not given to the mighty or the wealthy or the able. It's given to the poor who can do nothing on their own and what? Must humbly receive from God what they can never attain on their own. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now regarding this idea of those who mourn, what we have being described here by Jesus is a person who isn't just sad, or bummed out. This is a person experiencing a deep lamentation of the soul. Now before we go any further, we should consider, like what would motivate such an appropriate grief, a lamentation of the soul and the hearts of the citizens of heaven? Well first, I think it's safe to say initially, It would be the true cost of our poverty. The poverty of spirit. It would be the true cost of of our sin and our brokenness. It would be the reality that our salvation required the sacrificial death of God's only Son. Like that fact in and of itself would be sufficient enough to elicit such a response. Mourning. But additionally, it's worth pointing out that concerning Jesus himself, we read in Isaiah 53, verse 3, that he was, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like, understand, as Jesus lived out the human experience, he was constantly moved, touched, gripped by the pain and the suffering of those around him. Jesus was not immune to that pain, that reality. Jesus saw brokenness. It hurt him to see the state of humanity, to witness how poignantly sin had marred his creation. In the second beatitude, Jesus is saying that a central character trait of his disciples is that we possess a sensitivity to the effects that sin is having on the world around us. That's interesting. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say here, blessed are those with a righteous indignation or a righteous anger. Friend, we should mourn. We should be gripped. There should be a sorrow as we see the sad state of affairs. Mourning, that mourning should then motivate our actions. To this point, I think, as the citizens of heaven living in a fallen world, a deeper mourning over the tragic state of sinners would likely make a greater impact than righteously protesting sin. For example, imagine a scene where you have Christians outside the abortion clinic on their knees weeping 
over the loss of innocent life? What, what, what kind of desperation it must have taken for this woman to get to this point? The pain, the regret, you know she'll experience. Imagine Christians moved to mourning and tears as opposed to yelling obscenities and holding up signs that read baby killer. Blessed are those who mourn when they see sin, when they see sin's effects. I love the fact that Jesus says the blessing in such an outlook is that the person shall be comforted. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote something very applicable to this idea. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Now, did you notice that Christians here, according to Paul, We're called to comfort others. Other people in trial, tribulation, and trouble. Why? Because we were first comforted by God when we were facing a similar situation. You can preach a sermon on this idea in and of itself, but but the reason I point it out is what this means is that the real blessing and sharing in the sorrow that Jesus has for the lost world is that it yields, in turn, a deeper connection with Jesus. We mourn, and what results? Jesus comforts, which then makes us wonderful comforters. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. (laughs) Admittedly, this is one of those famous beatitudes that kind of makes you feel like you have to check your manhood at the door in order to be a citizen of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Meek. And sadly, this notion, meekness, it kind of comes and stems from a false way of interpreting what it means to be meek. You know, in our tongue, meekness, it's defined, again by Google, as a quietness or a gentleness. It describes one easily imposed upon in turn we see meekness it's kind of a negative character trait that somehow you're a pushover a pansy what's interesting is the original word in greek it's very difficult to actually translate into english case in point of the three times this word is used in the new testament you'll find it translated three different ways Aside from meek here in Matthew 5, verse 5, in 1 Peter 3, 4, the same word is translated as gentle, and then as lowly in Matthew 21, 5. Now, while there is no question that the word here describes a person who's chosen to be submissive, please don't mistake meekness for weakness. In fact, if you study the word, you'll come across all kinds of really wonderful definitions that get to the same point. Meekness is, I like this, strength under control. Or how about constraint under pressure? Meekness is the willingness to disregard one's own rights, one's own privileges, and the preference of a greater will and authority. Let me give you a way of thinking about meekness. Think of meekness as a wild, powerful stallion, yielded, 
to the control of the reins of a rider. You know, in the end, meekness. How can we understand meekness? Is there an example of meekness? You know, there is. Meekness is best understood by just looking at Jesus, isn't it? Like, as God, Jesus had complete power and authority, right? But it was a power, an incredible power, constantly under the submission of the will and the purposes of his Father. You know, on the cross, they taunted Jesus. You know, if you are who you say you are, you could command angels to come down and rescue you right here. In fact, Jesus could have just spoken and everyone would have died, you know? Like he had that power, he had that authority. And yet, while Jesus could have called down angels, he chose to remain on the cross. Why? Because it served a greater end. That's meekness. You know, as citizens of heaven, living in enemy territory, weakness is not the ideal that Jesus is describing. He doesn't want us to be weak to be weaklings. Now, Jesus is calling us instead to have a strength, a resolve, a tenacity, an endurance, but to have these things under the control of Him and His Spirit, the will and the purposes of the King. And as disciples, whatever our rights or or our unique privileges happen to be, they must always come secondary to His. This is why Jesus said the meek will be blessed, how? By inheriting the earth. It's quite a prize, right? In Greek, this coupling shall inherit, it's one word, and the future tense. It's a verb. It means to receive by lot, literally inheritance. In this, Jesus is promising everyone willing to lay aside their earthly ambition for the enactment of His heavenly will on this earth, they will receive when it's all said and done and the dust settles, the earth itself. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this character trait of a citizen of the kingdom, Jesus is saying that that we need to have, possess, a, a hunger, a thirst for what? For righteousness. You see, Christians should have an internal longing, a passion for the right thing. The right things. That's what righteousness is alluding to. Righteousness should be our driving force for what we say and what we do and how we live. That we live for the right thing to be accomplished. Jesus adds that the blessing in this pursuit is that they'll be filled or literally satisfied. I think that the essence of what Jesus is getting to is is pretty self-explanatory. But the power I find in this particular beatitude is that it speaks into what fundamentally motivates, what drives our actions. Not only will such a, a hunger and a thirst lead us to a passionate defense of what is true, but it will seek out what is right. To see what is right carried forth regardless of whatever consequences might be yielded. You know, sometimes it's it's easier to do the wrong thing. In fact, 
there are situations where doing the wrong thing will get you ahead. But what is your motivation? What is your driver? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If judgment is defined as a person getting what they deserve, and grace is demonstrated when a person is given the very thing they don't deserve, then mercy is best understood as a deliberate withholding of a righteous judgment that person undoubtedly deserves or warrants, merits. You know, I think it's safe to say, I've been chewing on this thought a lot this week, you know, receiving grace and mercy, like we love to receive these things. And we love to receive them, why? Because they both, by definition, have to manifest independent of our worthiness or us meriting them. And yet, I found that it's much harder, much harder, to demonstrate mercy to someone than it is grace. It's easier to, to, to demonstrate grace than mercy. Here's why. You know, when I grant grace to a person who doesn't deserve it, I'm bestowing a blessing at a personal cost. Like in the end, grace is free to the recipient only because the cost is assumed by the giver. And yet, when I demonstrate mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it, I'm bestowing a blessing by withholding a judgment at a personal loss. Like mercy only exists, it's only possible, if the offended party, the person who's been wronged, is willing to forgo what would have been a righteous recompense. Think of it this way. If you and I were in a car accident, and it was without question your fault. So let's just get out, that out of the way. It's your fault. You're guilty. Practically, grace and mercy would work out in two really different ways. Like mercy would be me making the decision not to rightfully sue you for damages. But I have to make that decision with the understanding that it will leave me with a personal loss. Grace would then be the decision to buy you a brand new car at a personal cost. You know, in such a dynamic, grace is only able to manifest from me to you out of an abundance of the blessings I have. And I'm willing to pass along. I happen to have enough money. I could buy you a car. If I didn't, I can't do it. See how that works? On the other hand, mercy, mercy comes from a willingness to bless you by choosing to absorb your debt at a great personal expense to myself. You know, grace is an act whereby the giver and the receiver get to share in the blessing. But in contrast, mercy is an act whereby the receiver is blessed and the giver is not made whole. Grace says, I'm going to bless you though you don't deserve it. Mercy declares, I'm going to let go of what I don't deserve so that you can be blessed. (laughs) Being merciful 
it's really hard. You know, one of the reasons that Jesus wants his disciples to be merciful is how absolutely contrary and totally foreign that is to the way the world operates. The world doesn't show mercy. Now understand, if our natural reaction to being harmed was the pursuit and execution of a righteous judgment and a proportional recompense, things would be fine. But is that how the world works? No, not at all. You see, most of the time, our response to being harmed is not the pursuit of justice, but vengeance. And worse still, revenge. This might not apply to any of you, the saints that you are. But if we're being honest with one another, when we get hurt, when we get harmed, when we get damaged, We typically want the person who's harmed us to experience the same level of pain plus just a little more. That's the way the world works, isn't it? Now, that's not right, and that's not justice. But what does it create? What it creates is a cycle, a circle of pain, hurt, harm, and more harm, hurt, and pain. You hurt me. So I hurt you with a little more added on. Now, since you've been hurt more than you originally hurt me, you feel the need to come back and hurt me a little bit more with a little bit added on. And around and around and around the world goes. Christian, you know what the world needs? The world needs, in order to break this terrible cycle, are people who are willing to demonstrate mercy. Because mercy says, no, 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 no. You've hurt me, but you know what? I'm going to absorb the loss. I'm going to to take the hurt. I'm going to choose not to act, even though it's within my right. What the world needs is mercy sponges. Where everyone's hitting each other, and you have the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that are willing to take the punch like Jesus, and love in return. And and I love the way that Jesus then articulates the blessing in this, the high calling. He says, blessed are the merciful, those willing to bless others at a personal loss, for they, and I love this, shall obtain mercy. Now in context, Jesus isn't saying here that those who show mercy will receive in turn a reciprocal measure of mercy from God and others. No, 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 no. Instead, in context, and really more relevant to the person who's now absorbed a loss because they showed mercy, what is Jesus saying? He's promising to help the person absorbing the loss. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I will help the afflicted. I will provide aid. In a way, I love it, Jesus is saying here, he's saying the blessing in being merciful, like the big blessing, is that if you're willing to do it and be radical in it, you're going to get to see me work in your life to make you whole. You chose not to be whole, but I'll step in and do the work. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This word we have translated as pure is the strongest word that, that you could use to articulate this idea of cleanness, purity. 
as citizens of the kingdom, Jesus is saying our hearts, which was kind of an, an, an analogizing way of, of articulating a person's internal desires. Jesus says we're to be undefiled. Our hearts are to be free of corruption, to be blameless, to be pure. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, if at any point in this sermon there, thus far you have felt good about maybe your ability to be the type of person Jesus is describing, yes, yeah, I mean, the mercy thing, that's a hard one, but I think I could work out that. If you've, ever, if, if you've felt this way at all, like I can do this, this beatitude presents a big challenge. As was observed by the prophet in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked. It's deceitful. And we were all born into a sin nature. Like from day one, our hearts came out warped, impure. It explains why the more natural thing for any of us to do is the wrong thing and not the right thing. We're really good at sinning. Doing the right thing, righteousness, it's way more difficult. You know? In effect, this beatitude is a perfect example of how all of the character traits that Jesus is describing can only result through a work of God in us. I can't change my heart. Apart from a radical working of Jesus Christ through the indwelling of His Spirit, there is no way to have a pure... I can't be pure in heart. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. I'm at a loss. In fact, in Psalms chapter 51, which is... Famously, David's psalm of repentance. You know, he's committed just this terrible sin. Bathsheba, the cover-up, all of this. It's been a year, the guilt. It's, I mean, and then he explodes in this psalm. It's a beautiful thing. But he says, and he cries out to the Lord. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, what's fascinating about this Hebrew word that David uses, create in me a clean heart is that it is the identical word that we find in the creation narrative of Genesis 1. The idea is to create something from absolutely nothing. What David is saying is, I don't have it. It's not here. I need you to create in me something that is impossible and improbable. Something that doesn't exist. Have you ever felt like in your life you're missing something? And then you don't have any ability to, to change it. I don't have it. It's not there. Create in me. See, Jesus can create, he can speak into you something that doesn't exist in you. A clean heart. Now, one of the components I find so encouraging is the way that Jesus says it. He says, look at it again, he says, Blessed are the, now that's a definitive article, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, now what Jesus is saying, and it's subtle, but it's profound. He's saying that purity of heart isn't a process. He didn't say, blessed are those whose hearts are becoming pure. Quite the contrary. You know how glorious it is to know that the Bible says the very moment that you accept Jesus Christ and are born again, the very moment that you are made righteous before God as that old person is replaced with the living spirit of God. That it's in that moment that heart of stone is replaced 
with a new heart, a pure heart. And what results from it? Because you have a pure heart, you have unlimited and unrestricted access to your heavenly Father. Blessed are the pure in heart for the blessing. (laughs) They shall see God. For the sake of time, we're going to close with just one more beatitude. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This word that we have recorded as peacemakers, it's really an interesting word. In fact, it's extremely rare. Most notably, this happens to be the only time in the entire Bible that the word peacemakers is used. In the Greek language, what we have here is a compound of two different words, making it, truthfully, a very strange coupling, which is why this is the only place you find it. Now, the first is the, the predominant word we have used throughout the Scriptures for peace. But it's the second word that's translated as maker that is a bit more nuanced. More often than not, the original word translated into English is not maker, but do. Which would then make a more accurate translation of the Beatitude as blessed are those who do peace, or you could translate are peaceable. Now, (laughs) if you think I'm splitting hairs a little on the translation, bear with me, because I'm convinced there is a significant difference in the way that we apply this verse based upon whether or not Jesus is calling Christians to be makers of peace or to simply be peaceable people. The application is different. Culturally, the very idea of peace, it's a layered onion. While it's true that our world longs for peace, we hear it a lot, conceptually we want peace, Practically, though, how peace is achieved is another idea entirely. You see, peace is often what? Well, it's the result of a decided conflict between opposing parties. Peace is what results when that gets taken care of. Sure, theoretically, we would love to think of peace as two opposing forces making the decision to coexist with one another in spite of the differences that may divide or foster conflict. And yet, if we're being honest, peace, give me another example of it, but peace often follows war with one side winning and the other side losing. Peace is won through battle and is enjoyed by the victor. Now before you contend, I'm only describing a worldly understanding of peace. Consider how the Bible describes the process by which we're able to have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Well, Jesus had to come from heaven and battle sin on the cross and conquer death and emerge victoriously. We have peace with God because of a cosmic war waged by Jesus in which he won on our behalf. (laughs) In the end, I mean, consider how the whole story of the Bible concludes. 
Like, how does this world around us, at long last, enter a period of peace, of true peace, for a thousand years? How do we get to that, that peace? Well, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, returns to earth and kills everyone that's an enemy. He destroys utterly any that would oppose, and then he binds Satan throws them into a bottomless pit so that we can have a thousand years of peace. That's how peace, the peace that we see in the, the end of the tribulation, that's how it's attained. Like, even within its biblical presentation, peace, we have this just lofty idea of it. But peace is something that's, that's won through conflict and war. Now, one of the reasons... I don't like the translation of this compound word, peacemaker, is that it ends up, I think, placing an unrealistic, borderline, puff-the-magic-dragon ideal onto Christians that is completely unfeasible and largely unfair. Like, to this point, if, as so many people claim, it is the job of Christians to make peace, with secular forces active in our society whose ideals are completely antithetical to all that we believe as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If it's our job to make peace with them, that can only happen in one of two different ways. Christians can be peacemakers by becoming more politically active so that we can crush the opposition and win at the ballot box. Or we can make peace by getting out of politics entirely, ceding control of the argument, and deliberately losing. You'd have peace in both scenarios. You know, to be frank, and I don't know who Frank is, but but contrary to factions that have dug deep foxholes on both sides of this argument, I don't believe either position is appropriate. Because I contend bringing peace to this crazy planet was not what Jesus was articulating in this beatitude anyway. Jesus will bring peace. You know, as citizens of the kingdom, living on foreign soil behind enemy lines, our role is not to seek peace with darkness, to play nice with the enemy, to find a moral middle ground with the forces of evil who are actively trying to destroy lives, ruin people, and send them to hell. Like the Bible is clear, and all of the language that it uses, that we are presently in a spiritual what? What do we call it? Warfare. A spiritual battle. And we can't avoid it. Or run from it. Or isolate. Meaning, peacemaking isn't the Christian objective. I believe, and you are free to disagree. But in this beatitude, Jesus is describing, and I think this is key, he's describing the manner in which we're to conduct ourselves in the battle itself. You see, we're called to engage in the war. And yet, we're to be peaceable in the manner in which we do. You know, regrettably, no one, despite you thinking you might be the exception, no one has ever been called to be a jerk for Jesus. Sadly, 
We have too many in our ranks. Christian, there should be a contrast between the way that we engage in the conflict and the way in which the world does. You know, we're quickly learning that the forces that are driving this world are becoming known more and more for what? Intolerance. (laughs) They're becoming more known for their intolerance towards those in whom they disagree. They'd rather cancel dissenting views than debate the merits in the public square. And sadly, when arguments fail, the world reverts to name-calling, generalizations, and stereotyping. And yet, I think what we've seen happen in our culture over the last few years provides the citizens of the kingdom a wonderful opportunity. Yes, you and I, we're to stand for truth. And for what is right. But what a contrast it would be if we were just as willing to disagree with others agreeably. People wouldn't know what to do with themselves. Like what if Christians refused to fight like the world fights and were determined to pick a higher ideal, engage in the conflict, but to be peaceable? Like, imagine the impact if Christians became known as being more focused on loving people, winning people to Jesus, and seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ than we were at winning the argument. You can win the argument, friend, and lose the soul. And then what? Is that why you're the citizen of the kingdom of heaven living on earth? No. Never forget the way that we engage in the fight is just as important to our king as the fight itself. For blessed are the peaceable. For they shall be called sons of God because they don't exist on this planet. Now, you would think, people who are poor in spirit and that they possess a true humility and those who mourn by having a genuine heart for the hurting and the lost, people who are meek, their strength, under the control of a higher will. Men and women, so passionate for righteousness that they're always willing to see the right thing accomplished no matter the cost. People willing to end that cycle of pain in this world by by being merciful. Those with a pure heart, honest intentions. People who, while, while firm in their convictions, are peaceable in the way that they engage those they may disagree with. You would think That person, man, the world would love those type of people. If you keep reading, as we'll see next Sunday, quite the opposite is true. So, Father, Lord, we let that just settle into our hearts. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name.